BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Welcome to The Briefing Room with me, David Aronovich. The idea is that you and I step into a large room crammed with computers, maps, reference books and top experts whose only job is to give us the most thorough briefing possible on the burning questions of the day. And what is singeing us today is the question of Europe beyond Brexit. What is the outlook for the European Union itself? And if you enjoy this podcast, you might enjoy other editions of The Briefing Room, which are all available on BBC Sounds. In this country this week, we're transfixed by Brexit and what might be called the Halloween extension. The image has been of supplicant Britain faced by a united European Union. But, as they say, we should stop assuming that it's all about us. This week's European Summit of the Heads of State and Government of the European Union, its full title, has had other things to talk about. Big things. So in this week's briefing room, I want to know what the challenges and potential pitfalls are that lie ahead of the EU with or without Britain. Join me inside. Even if Britain leaves, the EU will comprise a union of 27 countries, 450 million people and be one of the world's big three economic blocs. But it's been under strain in recent years. There's been the crash, the crisis in the Eurozone, the refugee and migrant crisis and the rise of a new kind of politics. We'll be looking at the economic prospects and the vexed question of European integration later. But first, I wanted to know about three specific areas. Europe's changing place in the world, the trends in migration and the growth of populism. Let's start with how the era of Trump is impacting on the Union. Dr Karen Donfried is president of the German Marshall Fund of the United States and I spoke to her down the line from Washington. Karen Donfried, when we look at the foreign policy challenges, the foreign relations challenges for Europe uh, in the period after Brexit, where would you identify them as being? Let's start with the relationships with the United States. What's striking about the period of history we're living in is that I would put the United States on the list of foreign policy challenges that Europe and the European Union is facing. And I say that because of the singular approach that Donald Trump has had toward our European allies. He has a deep sense of grievance and feels that the United States has gotten bad deals, whether it's been on trade or defense. And what's striking to me is how divided the European response to President Trump has been. So I travel quite a bit to Europe, and I'm struck when I go to a variety of European capitals. I touch down in Paris, and they say, Karen, we French are committed to strategic autonomy. We think America has gone bad. We can't rely on you anymore. Then I continue on to Berlin and talk to my German colleagues and acquaintances, and they say, we Germans are more focused on strategic patience that we think the policies emanating from Washington have to do with a singular U.S. president. And when a successor 
to Donald Trump comes into office, we do think there'll be a more traditional U.S. policy with regard to Europe and a recognition of the value that these relationships bring to the U.S. And then I continue on to Warsaw. And the polls say to me, Karen, we in Poland are all about a strategic embrace of the United States because we Poles have a big bad neighbor called Russia on our eastern border and we're not certain that the Germans, the French are going to defend us. And that's why we Poles are offering to pay $2 billion to have a permanent base of U.S. forces here in Poland. And when the Polish president Duda recently visited Washington, he even offered to call such a base Fort Trump. Now, how do you see that get resolved in the future? It potentially gets resolved in November of 2020, depending on the outcome of a U.S. election. But I think if there's a second term for Donald Trump, which is certainly a possibility, then it becomes an issue within the European Union, along with those other external challenges of Russia and China, which makes it difficult for Europe to craft a strong foreign and security policy for the union. Now, I would say that is already challenged by the fact that the UK has made the decision to leave the EU because the UK, along with France, is one of the global powers in the European Union. It has a permanent seat on the UN Security Council. It has an effective military. So the EU was already suffering on the geopolitical side of the ledger because of the British decision to leave. You mentioned the question of how to relate to Russia and China. What are the differences between EU countries about how you should deal with Russia? So Russia is a place where you've seen, I would say, quite impressive EU unity. After Russia legally annexed Crimea from Ukraine back in 2014, there was a similar reaction in both Washington and European capitals, which was in the 21st century, it is not okay for a stronger country to illegally annex the territory of its weaker neighbor. And we Americans and Europeans need to stand up in defense of the rule of law. So Angela Merkel as German chancellor had much more ability and power within the European Union to forge a consensus around putting in place sanctions against Russia. We've seen those sanctions hold in the European context, and those sanctions have held in the United States. So we're continuing to see a unified policy against Russia. But we've also seen countries like Italy say, well, we're not sure we want to keep sanctions in place against Russia. So there are the suggestions that that EU unity may not hold. But we're in 2019, and we've continued to see that consensus in the EU. Dr. Karen Donfried. Next, Migration. Alia Ahad is Associate Policy Analyst with the Migration Policy Institute Europe and is based in Brussels. How many people are coming from where and going to where right now? The numbers are actually at the lowest that they've been in years in several places, including in Italy and in Greece, where we're seeing increases, and that's still only in the tens of thousands, is in Spain is one of the more recent countries to have seen an increase or a spike in irregular arrivals. But across the board, even though we're still talking about things as being in a crisis-like situation, arrivals have actually gone down. Why have the numbers dropped? Part of the reason why the numbers have gone down is 
in response to the EU-Turkey deal that was signed back in 2016 and being able to get uh, control over flows into Greece. It's also gone down in um, crossing the Mediterranean into Italy, partly because of the instability in Libya. Overall, numbers of those kinds of uh, migrants uh, has been dropping. Does that mean that the salience of migration has been dropping in EU countries? Are people less concerned about it than they were? If only that were the case. <laughs> I think the the lasting impact of the so-called crisis from 2016 and 2015 has been that this echo of, of fear around migration has just reverberated throughout the continent, both at the EU level and at the member state level. And in many ways, it doesn't have to do with arrivals themselves, but this sense of a loss of control, the loss of legitimacy in public institutions, in governments to be able to control borders. What challenges has this presented or is it still presenting to EU countries when trying to work together to a common policy? Just by the nature of the European Union, there are some countries, those on the front lines, on the borders, that are going to receive more irregular arrivals. And so this idea of wanting to beef up solidarity between all member states so that those who are on the border do not you suffer disproportionately be just due to their geographic location. So I think it's been difficult for the member states of the EU to look beyond their differences in order to construct something that is more durable. And we've seen that in the inability to pass reform to the common European asylum system. And so the, the sort of same uh, deficiencies that were underlying the migration crises are largely still there. Now, what about the question of seeing Europe's borders as a common problem and creating a beefed up European border force made up of all the members? This is actually you know, something within the proposed regulations for the common European asylum system and the European Border and Coast Guard and also the, the European Agency on Migration. So these proposals haven't been passed, but it, it would seek to address this uh, this challenge that's inherent in having a, a common border and a free movement within those common borders, but having you know national governments still responsible for creating their own protocols and operationalizing the requirements in different ways. Alia Ahad. Finally in this section, the new politics of Europe itself, and specifically what's called the rise of populism. One man who's been studying this is Assistant Professor Matthias Rodine of the Department of Political Science at the University of Amsterdam. He joined me from there. Matthias Rodine, how can we measure the progress of populist parties in Europe? If you look at populism in general, we can see that about one in every four Europeans uh, vote for these parties. The main story here when it comes to the European elections is the success of right-wing populists or radical right-wing populists, as I prefer to call them. They are increasingly successful right now. The left-wing populists are also successful, but less successful in the last couple of, well, months, years maybe. So what's the difference between radical right and other populists? Well, the radical right-wing populists, they really emphasise the nation. They are strongly nationalist. And in addition to being nationalist, they are xenophobic. So they embrace a particular type of nationalism. They uh, criticise outgroups for threatening the nation-state. It can be various outgroups. It could be immigrants in general. It could be people with another religion, uh, Muslims. It could be people of another race, uh, an ethnic minority, for instance. 
these parties also have strong opinions when it comes to issues about law and order. They are in favor of a strong punishments and they usually think that if there is someone who breaks the law that he or she should punish severely. What do radical right and nationalist groups tend to think about the European Union? They're all pretty negative about the European Union. They are skeptical about the EU for two main reasons, I would say. The first one is because of this nationalism. They argue that the EU forms a threat to the nation state because their own identity, their own traditions are threatened by this European Union. And the second reason, and that's related, of course, is their populism. Populism means that they criticize elites for not listening to ordinary citizens and betraying ordinary citizens. And they argue that there is this elite of Brussels technocrats who have no idea what ordinary citizens find important. And therefore, they are really negative about Brussels. There are some places, aren't there, where they're pretty much in government and then other places where they're very much in opposition. Yeah. Absolutely. So, for instance, in Hungary or Poland, they are the main players in in government and that gives them a lot of power. And I think that we should distinguish these cases from cases where they are partner in a government coalition, but not the major player. In which countries is that the case? Well, right now we, of course, have a coalition in Italy, which is completely populist, but there is a non-radical right-wing populist party, uh, the Five Star Movement, and there is the Lega, which is the smaller party. In the Netherlands, we have had uh, a populist radical right party in government. When we look at these Western European countries where they have played a role in government, in most cases, their direct influence has not been so great. It's mostly their indirect influence that matters. And that means that these parties have a strong impact on mainstream right-wing parties. Do we have an impression about whether these parties have reached their limits or are likely to grow even more? We don't know. I mean, these parties have been growing since the 70s and 80s. And in particular, in the last two decades, they have been growing steadily. My estimation would be that the absolute maximum support for these parties is around 25-30%. How does it work out when they do get into government, given that populism involves attacking the elite? And almost by definition, when you're in government, you are the elite. They shift their elite critique. They do not criticise the most powerful parties, but they criticise the deep state, for instance, or they criticise the legal system, the judges, they criticise the media. A second thing that we see that many of these parties do is they try to present themselves as opposition parties in government. And this is something that, for instance, the Danish People's Party has done. So they can affect government, but at the same time present themselves as opposition. And therefore, they can still emphasize their populist message. So they never get the blame. So they never get the blame, exactly. That is the reason why they do it. Matthias Rodine. Joining me in the briefing room are Arnand Menon, Professor of European Politics and Foreign Affairs at King's College London and Director of the UK in a Changing Europe initiative, Simon Tilford, Deputy Research Director for Global Economy and Finance at Chatham House, and Helen Thompson, Professor of Political Economy at Cambridge University. Arnand Menon, does Britain's departure presage in your uh, analysis other attempts to leave within the EU? I think the short answer, for the short term at least, is no. Uh, You see that in the opinion polls that express increasing support for membership amongst all the other member states. You see that in the way populist parties that had talked about leaving the EU or leaving the euro 
actually reversing track. You see it in Italy, you see with the Front National in France. Uh, there are loads of reasons for this. And I suppose one of them is the fact that we don't look like a very good role model at the moment. And actually, that's making people think twice. I mean, there are other reasons as well, not least for all other member states. I think European integration is more deeply ingrained in the political DNA of those countries than it ever was. Even in France, and let's face it, the French don't need lectures from us about nationalism. When the French president makes a statement or gives a press conference, there are two flags behind him. That's the sort of thing that would just be inconceivable in this country, even when we have a pro-European prime minister. <laughs> OK, well, let's go now on to the economy. Simon Tilford, if you were to analyse the major economic challenges and the economic state of the European Union, what would be the headline that you would put on it? Well, the biggest single challenge is that uh, we could be heading into another downturn with most of the, the region having barely recovered from the, the last crisis. So what's been so striking about uh, the period of time since the crisis is how long it took for the European economy to regain momentum and then quite how weak the recovery was even when it did. Typically following a big, big crisis, a big depression of the kind we had following the financial crisis, economies experience a period of rapid economic growth, sort of catch up from the downturn. Now one or two members of the EU did have done decently. Germany's done okay, but even Germany only looks okay by comparison with how bad uh, the performance of its neighbours has been. The really worrying thing is that we could really be going into the next downturn. And the question then is how Europe, or the Eurozone in particular, is going to cope with that downturn. Typically, in a downturn, the central bank cuts interest rates by several percentage points in order to kind of sustain economic activity, in order to fight off recession. Well, interest rates in the Eurozone are at zero, so they can't cut rates. So the alternative is for governments to spend a lot more money. But the problem is that the countries that are most that are going to be most in need of a fiscal stimulus, places like Italy, are the economies in the Eurozone that have the least space, the least policy space to provide it. And, and there's been no substantive agreement since the crisis among the Eurozone economies about how they should integrate more fully. Normally, you know, the members of a currency union underwrite each other's debt. So weak economies are not left trying to borrow. Helen Thompson, what is the reason for this sluggish uh, growth level? Well, I think the really problematic thing for the future of the Eurozone is that it isn't coming from one thing. It's got two obvious sources, one of which comes out of Italy. Italy has never been able to get back to where it was in 2007 in terms of um, GDP per capita, and it's never managed that many quarters of growth without going back into Why is that, recession. I mean, it's, it's the consequence of the level of debt that Italy is carrying, the fact that for in the pre-Euro years, and Italy adjusted to economic problems by devaluation and is not able to do that. It's to do with the competitiveness of some of its uh, industries, and it's to do then with the if you like, the interactive consequences of having weak banks that are then in a position of having lots of customers and clients who can't repay their debts. And so you get lots of bad loans on Italian uh, in, in, in Italian banks. But the other problem is more worrying, and that is what is going on in Germany. Germany is experiencing, a, if you like, a China shock to its economy. And that really German economic weakness at the moment isn't coming from the same things that's driving what's going on in Italy. It's coming from the dependency of the German economy on China, on um, supply chains, on exports to um, China. And China is also beginning to compete, in fact, more than beginning to compete in sectors in which the German economy has previously been strong. 
So that raises another question, which is about China's general uh, activities. Clearly, you've got Italy and a number of the other EU states that, have, that are looking to China for investment. And in part, they're looking to China for investment because of the problems of generating investment within the rules of the Eurozone. Let's move on to the question uh, of integration. Uh, Arnon Menon, what do you think the prospects are for a greater significant movement towards federalisation? I would say quite low. I mean, when I hear people like President Macron talking about uh, building a European state or a European army, I mean, I, I'm minded to think of Marc Francois talking about Dunkirk. I mean, it's, <laughs> the it's a sort of MP. <laughs> it's, it, it's the sort of rhetoric that appeals to a crawl group of followers that irritates a bunch of other people and nothing much tends to come of it. And I think, you know, there's a sort of quasi-religious aspect to French rhetoric about European integration. The fact of the matter is, Meaningful reforms in the European Union require unanimity to change the treaties. And there is so many divisions between the member states that if you opened up the treaties, you would never secure that unanimous agreement. So for the moment, at least, and I'm not saying for a moment the EU is going to fall apart, I don't think it will. But for the moment, at least, it'll be a question of muddling through the kind of dramatic initiatives that some of the rhetoric implies, I think, is really not going to happen. Helen, um We're about to go into a set of European elections and people have talked about how the results of those European elections could uh, change things. Um, Could you push forward to those elections and say what you think their importance is and, if you don't mind, roughly what you think might happen? (laughs) I'm not sure about what I think might happen, but I I think what what is striking about this round of of, um, European Parliament elections is that in two countries in particular, France and Italy, for completely different reasons that the, the, the governments, and in, in the Italian case, we're talking really about Salvini, the, the leader of the, the League, have invested a lot of their political credibility in the way in which these elections turn out. And I think more so than has been the case in the past. So there is some sense, at least symbolically, in which there are two visions of what the European Union can be that are being contested in this election, Macron's um, vision and, and, and Salvini's vision. Now, the point, though, is that Macron's vision is rather hollow. So actually, in terms of the outcomes that will ensue from, even if Macron's um, position was vindicated uh, in the European Parliament elections, it, it wouldn't really change anything, I don't think. But I think that symbolically it has become very important because what you're having, in some sense, for the first time, because it's happening in Italy, is an alternative conception of what the European Union can be and what it is for being articulated in one of the large states, leaving Britain out of it, which was a in a semi-detached relationship for um, a long time. Britain wasn't really trying to contest the future of the European Union in the same way in which Salvini is now trying to contest what, 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 it. So, so in that case, that big, the, the next question is, what is Salvini's vision that he is putting forward? Well, it consists of a lot of things. I'm a Menon. It's, it's, a, it's a traditional... Uh, uh, sovereignist view in the sense that he wants member states to exercise more power. At the same time, he wants ex- he wants member states to exercise more burden sharing when it comes to uh, immigration. It's far from a coherent vision, but it's one that usefully uh, picks up on Brussels as part of the problem. And that, in a sense, is what makes him distinct from uh, Macron. Well, that's very interesting, because if that vision is consolidated as a result of these elections, strengthened in any way, how does that help the EU deal with further crises and problems? 
Well, I think one of the reasons you're getting this political fight at the moment is that it's become apparent to people that the EU is a very unstable halfway house. That's to say, member states have given away key powers, but the EU doesn't have enough authority to deal with the problems that this raises. So you can do one of two things. You can renationalise or you can centralise. That, broadly speaking, is one of the fights going on in these European elections. Now, the problem is that, as Helen said, even if those who want further integration win it's very, very hard to see how you push through the necessary reforms that need unanimity to allow that form of integration to actually come to pass. So we are kind of stuck, I think. And I think it's got actually a structural cause to it, which isn't, I, I think, um, drawn out enough in, this, in these discussions. And that is, is Germany's position, because essentially since Germany ratified the Maastricht Treaty in 1993, the German Constitutional Court has asserted that Germany has an effective veto on further integration that any integration has to be subject to the consent, the explicit consent of the German um, legislature. And that means that Germany is a veto player in the way in which other states cannot be a a veto player. And that issue really played out through um, the moves that the European Central Bank ended up making to try to deal with the Eurozone crisis, because at every point along along the path, basically it had to get the tacit consent of the German government in the hope that the German constitutional court wouldn't come round and say, no, you're not doing that. So whatever happens... Simon, Simon Tilford. That's a crucial point, I think. It also uh, comes down to different, differing conceptions of what more or closer integration would entail. So when the Germans talk about integration or even federalism, they're talking about basically more rules and tougher centralised enforcement of those rules. What other federalists, particularly the French, but certainly the Belgians and, and uh, the Italians and the Spanish are talking about are, and the French up to a point, are sort of more unified institutions. They're talking about institutional integration. Now, they both see themselves as arguing for closer integration, uh, but these are very different things. And rules are really no substitute for institutions. We saw that within the Eurozone crisis. You can have as many rules as you want, but if the rules don't make sense economically or if they're unsustainable politically, uh, then... uh, they're going to prove to be largely meaningless. The problem is that the Germans feel that other countries have not obeyed, abided by the rules, and that's undermined their trust in other EU member states, whereas the other side say the rules were not meaningful uh, in that they didn't reflect the, uh, the, the economic and political pressures facing those countries, and what is required is in- institutional integration, which will prevent countries getting in into the kind of uh, economic and political crisis they found themselves in. Uh, uh, in, in, in 2000, 2011. So, no sunlit uplands? Not for the moment. No, not really. No. Taking all that into consideration, what do you think the next big crisis to hit the European Union is likely to be? Where's it likely to come from? And how do you think the EU will cope with it? Well, I think in the short term, there's a rocky future ahead for the European Union because of what we've been talking about, which is, if you like, the politicisation or the institutionalisation between member states of these fundamental fights over what integration should be and what direction it should go in. So, for instance, I wouldn't be at all surprised if we don't have an almighty bust up amongst EU member states over the appointments to the European Commission. It wouldn't surprise me if Salvini appointed a a hardline Eurosceptic. The European Parliament said, hang on a sec, we don't like the look of him. The Italians have done this before, of course, they've got form, and that we end up fighting this battle through various proxies via the institutions, via specific policy areas for a while to come. Uh, Simon, what would you say to that? I think the biggest threat is is on the economic front. The fact that the global economy is slowing, plus uh, we're seeing some big rebalancing in China. 
means that Europe's growth strategy has been exposed. And that strategy was largely export dependent, particularly in Germany. And that's really why we're seeing a major reason why we're seeing the Eurozone economy slowing so rapidly. And that is exposing some real underlying weaknesses. Basically, living standards have barely risen uh, across uh, much of Europe for the last uh, 20 years. And there's a very real risk that that is not handled very well politically. Helen, what do you say? I think it's going to be the European Central Bank trying to go back to quantitative easing. I think that's going to cause an almighty row with Germany. And the second thing is, I think it's going to be about Nord Stream 2, which is the gas pipeline um, taking gas um, from um, Russia to Germany. And who's that going to be a dispute between? It's going to be a dispute between everybody. (laughs) Helen Thompson there with Arnon Menon and Simon Tilford. And my thanks also to Alia Ahad, Karen Donfried and Matthias Rodine. We'll be back at the same time next week. You've been listening to The Briefing Room with me, David Aronovich. The producers were Sally Abrahams and Kirstine Knight, the editor was Andy Smith and the production coordinator was Iki Egbatola. And if you'd like to listen to more episodes like the one on the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative, you can catch up by going to BBC Sounds.